Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. Elizabeth's going to read the entire chapter to us this morning. Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Yes, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, on behalf of Abraham and Abraham's family and Sarah's family, I want to thank you for coming today to this funeral and memorial service and burial for our dear friend, Sarah. Even though she is the woman of laughter, today is a day to grieve. How are you at grieving? Are you a good griever? When life is hard and there's suffering, whether it's something that you might think of as minor all the way up to the death of a loved one, do you know how to grieve 
well? Are you prepared mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually for what might happen this week that might cause you deep sorrow and grief? Genesis 23 is about grief, sadness, loss. And it comes right on the heels of chapter 22, which is a time of massive emotional exhaustion, I'm sure, for Abraham and Sarah. I think God lays out chapter 22 and chapter 23 together to teach us something. Years pass between those chapters. Lots of things God could have recorded about those years that we would have benefited from. But according to God's plan, he wanted chapters 22 and 23 to go back to back to teach us something about life. If you're more than four years old, you know that life is filled with ups and downs. Great joy and happiness and sudden sorrow and loss and grief. Well, I think God puts these two chapters back to back so that the reader, us, will recognize this traumatic up and down life that Sarah and Abraham lived together. I mean, can you just imagine, just take last week, for example, the emotional, mental, spiritual, physical trauma Abraham experienced as Abraham left with Isaac and headed up the hill. Imagine what Sarah went through during those hours that Abraham and Isaac were gone. And as far as she knew, Abraham would sacrifice Isaac's life on the altar. Imagine how Abraham must have been filled with horror, with fear, with weeping, with confusion, with physical trembling as he raised the knife. Imagine the, the process he had to go through when he heard what he thought was the voice of an angel telling him to stop. And then turning to see a ram stuck in the thicket. I mean, when he got home, it must have been hours, no days, no weeks of him and Sarah trying to process what had happened. I mean, certainly an event like that has to be traumatizing. And has to give you much time to think about what you had just been through and to process it in a way that is helpful. I wonder how many naps Abraham and Sarah took just trying to emotionally recover. Or maybe they couldn't sleep at all from what they went through during that time. And this is just one example. I mean, I want to share the ups and downs of their life because your life probably mirrors their life in some ways. Maybe not as traumatic as theirs or dramatic, but nonetheless, we live lives that are up and down, up and down, up and down. So think about them. I mean, in chapter 12, they encounter God for the first time and he promises them the land. Yet Sarah wanders and sojourns her entire life and never even gets a piece of the land until her death. God promises them a son, yet they experience 25 years of infertility. Twice, Sarah finds herself in the harem of a king. Yet each time, God rescues her and they leave with more wealth than they came with. God promises them as many offspring as the stars in the sky, yet Sarah only dies with one, only one child. Abraham watches Lot be taken, a prisoner of war. One of them is going to die, but then God empowers Abraham to rescue Lot. They watch God pour fire and sulfur down on cities, annihilating everyone. And then they see Lot get rescued as well as his wife, get turned to a pillar of salt. Imagine those conversations with Lot. Imagine being his friend. Imagine trying to counsel him through his grief 
as he looks back on what happened to his wife. And then he's almost about to sacrifice his son Isaac only to have God provide a ram. And now, chapter 23, at 127, 110 years of marriage, Sarah dies. So many things must be running through Abraham's head. All the memories, all the ups, all the downs that they walked through together. And so I think it's good for us to consider our lives. I feel like this is just an invitation for us to consider our lives and all the ups and downs that we've been through. All the ups and downs you've been through. All the trials, all the temptations, all the grieving, all the pain. And as you do, I ask you this morning, are you a good griever? Do you know how to grieve? Do you grieve well? So this story is about grief, and it can be divided into two pieces, and I'm going to spend more time on the first one and the second, but I'd like to divide it this way. Grief at the beginning of the story possesses Abraham so that eventually Abraham will possess the land. If you need a sermon title, which I know I'll be asked for one later today, I would say it's this. A funeral with a redeeming purpose. This chapter is about a funeral with a redeeming purpose. It is about grief and promises fulfilled. My fear is too often as a church or in church, we skip quickly over the grieving and just remind each other of the blessings that are supposed to come from it. And so perhaps this morning you just need to be given permission Maybe you need position, permission or not to consider where you need to grieve, where you have been grieving, and if you really are grieving well. So point number one is this. Grief possesses Abraham. Look, at, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. He wept and he mourned. He grieved and he was filled with deep sorrow. So far in Genesis, there's been a lot of dying I mean, Tyler preached a whole message from chapter 5 where it was just, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. We watched everyone die in the flood. Cain murders Abel. Chapter 19, everyone dies in Sodom and Gomorrah. But this seems to be unique. This is the first time we pause with anyone in redemptive history, in Genesis, to weep, to mourn over someone's death. And in this case, a man who was married to a woman for 110 years, and she is now passed away. I I think this is true because if you look at the chapter, it's bookmarked, it's bookended with Sarah's death. So in verse 2, it's Sarah died. Verse 20 ends with a burial place where she is actually buried. And then 12 times, 12 times in 20 verses, we read the word dead or burying place. So remember, when this was written, there was no ability to highlight something or change the font size. Instead, what did you do? Repetition. That's highlighting. That's increasing the font size for us. 
Reader, Christchurch, notice how many times the word buried is in the passage. Notice how many times the word dead is in the passage. Twelve times in 20 verses. Begging us to stop and to consider the grief and the sorrow that comes from death and sometimes just from other events in life that come our way. And I think it invites us to consider how we grieve in life's trials. And so I want to give you three little sub-points here about grief. Some of them are more tightly tied to the story in Genesis than others. I am desirous this morning to pastor and care for you and guide you and shepherd you. So there's things I'm going to say that you might think, that's not exactly in the text. You're right. And we can talk about those things later. But I hope there are things that help you. Because I think it's really important that we all know how to grieve. So the first thing I would say is this, under point number one, is that I think grieving is good, and I think grieving is necessary. I think Abram weeping and mourning was good and right, and nowhere in Scripture do we ever see anyone, including Abraham here, being corrected for his mourning or for his deep pain. And I know that many of you in this room have experienced the death of a parent, child, sibling, a friend. And so it's good for us to just remember that death is not the way things were supposed to be. We were not created to die. Death is horrible. Death is sad. Death is traumatic. It is devastating. It's confusing. And death is painful. And so it's good for us to have God's perspective of death and of grieving that goes with our death or the death of loved ones. And so just a verse or two to help, I pray, guide you this morning. In Psalm 116, we read, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The death of Sarah was precious in the sight of the Lord. The death of Sarah was costly in the sight of the Lord. It was bright. It was honorable, just like anyone else who is a saint and goes to the Lord who dies. So I just want you to know that God does not sit around passively observing the death of someone. He's not unemotional when someone dies. God experiences grief and sadness beyond what we could ever imagine. I don't know whether you have an emotional God or not. We have an emotional God. <laughs> who feels deeply with us in our grief and is sad with us. And he's fully aware of their death and of your pain. He's there. He sees it. The second thing I want us to see is that grief is godly. We don't really have time to do this this morning, but if we did, I would remind us that we talk about how we want to speak Jesus into everything. Now, those are something about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he is doing, or what he will do that connects to death and pain. And so right now, I hope your minds are going, what do I know about Jesus and how he deals with death and grieving? And if you're like me, your mind goes to another funeral, one where Jesus was in attendance. Tell me his name. Lazarus. Lazarus. Yeah. So my mind goes right to Lazarus and that story where we read in chapter 11 of John, Jesus' interaction with his own soul, 
where it says in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This is no show on Jesus' part. He is deeply grieved and troubled. Verse 35 says, our scripture memory that we all have when we were kids, Jesus wept. His heart broke over the death of Lazarus. And then in verse 38, we're told that Jesus was deeply moved again. So it wasn't a one and done for Jesus. He's there with the knowledge that Lazarus would come out of the grave in just a little while, and yet he's still deeply grieved and moved over and over over the death of his friend Lazarus. See, when we grieve over death or loss, when we grieve over just about anything, do you understand that you're actually imaging God? You're imaging God. You're acting like God. It's not sinful for you to grieve. It's not sinful for you to find sadness in your heart over the circumstances of life that aren't the way life is supposed to be. You're actually acting like God and helping the world to see what God is really like. I know some of you in this room pretty well. Others, I don't know you very well at all. So I don't know if any of you have been taught or told that lovers of Jesus really don't grieve If you do, you do it just for a little while, and mildly. Maybe you take the song that we sing sometimes too extreme, where it says, how can grief remain when our Savior reigns? Oh, I know exactly how my grief can remain, even though my Savior reigns, because I deal with it every day. Maybe your grief should be less, and only for a season if you're a Christian. Maybe you, have spent, you should be more connected with God so that your grieving is mild. I don't know what you've been taught, but I think this passage invites us, gives us permission, encourages us to grieve, to be filled with sorrow. Whether it's over the death of a family or a friend, or whether you're helping somebody deal with their grief and their pain. Some of you may be familiar with this. In 1969, Elizabeth Ross wrote a book about the five stages of grief. She later edited it and added seven. Maybe there's even more than seven for some of us. Oh, I don't think everyone goes through these seven stages, shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, acceptance. I don't think everyone goes through them in order. I think this book is helpful at the very least because it gives humans permission to grieve in a variety of ways, for a variety of seasons, and then to go back through the circle again. Because I think we all grieve differently. Many of you know that it was in March, February, that Elsbeth's mom spent two weeks in the hospital and died. And anybody that has lost loved ones that way, you know the struggle that can be. But what came out, not that it hadn't come out before, but it came out in just a brighter way, was how differently her and I grieve. And how easily that can bring conflict in a marriage. How come you're not grieving like I am? What is your problem? Stop grieving. So do you have permission to grieve? 
Do you know that grieving is okay? We had to work through different things because everyone grieves in different ways, for different seasons, at different times, with different intensity, and for different lengths of time. And listen, if you've lost a loved one, you will grieve until the day you die. Your grieving won't end. You will always grieve over the loss of a loved one. And there's other significant events in your life that you may never stop grieving from in different ways, in different intensity, until the day that you die. Grieving is a part of healing, and some grief will never stop this side of heaven. And so grieve. Be like God and grieve. And also help others to grieve, because I think a third thing we can learn that's not necessarily in the text here in Genesis is that I think grieving is a community experience. In other words, we need to help one another learn how to grieve. Husbands and wives, you've got to help each other grieve and give each other permission to grieve and help each other grieve in ways that are different than one another at different times than you grieve because we're all unique. You guys know Romans 12 where it says, Weep with those who weep. The writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a season for everything, including a time for grieving and weeping. And I think it's something that we need to learn to do together. And I don't want to put people in categories because I don't think categories are often helpful, but I think there's some in this room that are more prone to grieve. There's others in this room that may be more prone to fixing And when you put those two people together and the griever is grieving and the fixer is ready to fix, the griever can't grieve. And perhaps the fixer is grieving by trying to fix. And so those who are grieving need to be patient with the fixer. Either way, do you give the person who's trying to help you grace to grieve the way that God wants them to grieve? I think it's important for parents to keep this in mind. Parents, and we got kids that grieve over things at times we probably think are ridiculous to grieve over. So do we tell them, stop being sad over that. Stop grieving over that. You shouldn't be grieving over that. You shouldn't be sad. Or do we enter into their grief? Even if it's silly, from an adult perspective, do we teach our kids, do we train our kids how to grieve? That grief is a, grief's okay. Life's full of disappointments, trials, hurts, discouragements, failures. Are we walking with our children, letting them know that, yes, we all grieve, and we grieve in different ways, and it is okay to grieve? I hope we as a community can continue to grow together in helping each other grieve, giving each other permission to grieve, encouraging each other to grieve, letting someone grieve without trying to fix them or give them the magic Bible bullet, as if that'll give them the answer. I wonder how often we just need to sit with someone and just let them grieve. Say nothing. Arm on the shoulder. Listen. Sympathize. I hope we know how to grieve. I hope we can grow at grieving well and grieving together. Now the second point that I think this passage teaches is not meant to overshadow the first part of the sermon. Because Abraham's grieving, the death of Sarah, 
opens the way for God to begin to fulfill his promise to give Abraham the land. But that doesn't take away Abraham's grieving. So be careful as I transition here. Because we can hear the rest of this sermon and think, when somebody's grieving, I'll just say to them to help them. God's got all things working together for your good according to his purpose. As if that wipes away the grief. So I'm cautiously moving into what the second part of this passage teaches, knowing it should not overshadow or replace your or Abraham's grief. So point number two is this. Abraham possesses the land, sort of. Sort of. I think this chapter shows us that Abraham is grieving, yes, but that God somehow uses his grieving to produce something. doesn't mean the blessing took away the grieving. It does mean that God used the grieving to begin fulfilling a plan that he had. So think about it with me. If you listen to Elspeth read, verses 4 to 20 are boring. Why so much detail about Abraham going to the men of the city and saying, I need a place to bury Sarah. Okay, I would like to bury her in Ephron's tomb. Okay, Ephron overhears it. Okay, you can have my land and my grave, my cave. All right, I'll buy it from you. No, 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 don't buy it. I'll give it to you. No, 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 I want to buy it. Okay, 400, 400 shekels of silver. All right, good. Why so many verses given to this? I have no idea. I have a hunch. 17 out of 20 verses are dedicated to this transaction of Abraham possessing the land. And if you look at verse 18, I think the word possession is supposed to capture our attention. To Abraham, let me just back up to verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machapelth, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. So you hear that word possession, and what do we know to be true about Abraham? What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to possess the land. Finally, after all these years, Abraham is going to get to possess at least a chunk of the land, a little piece of the land that God seems to be giving to him. In fact, in this chapter alone, there are 17 references to the land of Canaan, property, the land, and the field. So once again, repetition is supposed to get our attention. This is not just about the death of Sarah, but how it correlates with the possession of the land, with God fulfilling his promise. See, the death of Sarah and Abraham's grieving seems to be setting into motion Abraham's possession of the promised land. So it's just one step in God giving Abraham what he promised Abraham. Now let's get human. Because when I read this, I think this is not the way that I want Abraham to get the land. This is not how I thought God was going to do it. Why doesn't God just give him the land? Why does he have to buy the land? Why does Sarah have to die first? Why can't she be part of going into the land? I want to ask God, why? Why do it this way, God? You ever ask that in the middle of your grieving? Why, God? I can think of a hundred other ways to do this. Why? 
Why? But I often wonder how often I can think wrongly about how I want God to keep his promises. As if I know better. God does and will keep his promises the way that he chooses to keep his promises. And here God chooses to keep them in a way that may make us uncomfortable. Abraham has to pay for the land. He only gets it one little chunk at a time. And don't miss the reality that Sarah's death is what it took to set this thing into motion. Now, I want to be careful not to over-spiritualize this or take it too far, but I can't help but think that this is kind of how the kingdom of God often works. It seems like in the kingdom of God, if you especially read Matthew and others of the gospel, it seems that often Jesus talks about something needing to die in order for something needing to live. If there's going to be blessing, there needs to be death or dying or pain. So Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me and you'll find life. I don't know, picture taking up a cross. That doesn't look like life to me. That looks like death. So it's flipped upside down. You've heard Jesus say, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So the principle seems to be that something dies before there's life. Suffering, sadness, grief often becomes a blessing and life. Again, Not to wipe away your grief. But maybe at times, when God so inclines to let us see the reason for our grieving. There's something else here about Abraham's grief and the land and Sarah's death that I think we can learn. And that is that Abraham identifies himself as a sojourner. Did you catch that in verse 4? He He says to them very clearly, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. I think as a sojourner, Abraham is looking forward to a future land. And I can say that with confidence because the New Testament gives us commentary on this, which I'm grateful for because it helps us understand what's going on. How how is Abraham at least beginning to deal with his grieving? What informs Abraham's grieving? And so in Hebrews chapter 11, we read this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We take that verse 10 and again. He was looking forward. I, I, I almost imagine, I don't know how these things work together in Abraham's heart, but I can imagine Abraham weeping and grieving over the loss of, of Sarah, and at the same time, somehow simultaneously looking forward to the city that God is designing and building for him. Grieving, but looking forward. Grieving, but looking forward. It seems like Abraham had the ability to grieve and to look forward, that in his reality, his worldview, he was radically impacted by the death of his wife at the same time looking forward to a city that God was building for him. He knew that this earth was not his home. He was a sojourner. 
And I think that helps us as we try to live our lives on this earth. See, ultimately, I don't think Abraham ever believed that he and Sarah would settle down in the promised lands for hundreds of years of enjoyable retirement. Golf, shopping, restaurants. Once categories for Abraham, he was looking forward to another land, to another place. And somehow that informed his grieving. So I ask you this morning, grieve well. We need to grieve deeply while also looking forward. I think for me, I look forward. I just don't look forward, forward enough. My sight is limited. Instead of looking to the land that my builder and designer is building, I look to this land, hoping that God will just keep pouring out the blessings here, and I stop short of looking at the blessings that are yet to come. We can look forward to finishing school, getting a job, getting married, having kids, moving into a new house, getting a new car, finally getting over the sickness. We can look forward to vacation, to retirement. In fact, we can let our hearts, even our imaginations and fantasizing run wild as we look forward to all the things we'd like to see happen on this earth, but then we stop and we don't let our minds go beyond the time that our feet will be touching the earth. Is it possible that our grieving, which is good and we need to continue in, is somehow formed or shaped or informed when we realize that there's something else coming? When we look forward, forward, and not just forward. Of all the things you are, and you are a child of God, you are dearly loved, you are a saint, you are also a sojourner. Meaning you're just passing through. You're just passing through Mount Airy. You're just passing through Woodbine. You're passing through Damascus. You're passing through your town. Headed on to another location. America is not your home. It's not. Your house is not your home. We look forward to somewhere else, somewhere new, somewhere different. And the ultimate fulfillment of this, of course, is in Revelation 21. Gotta be one of everybody's favorite passages where John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And now he talks about grieving. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they've all passed away. When will the tears be wiped away? When Jesus returns. When will mourning stop? Jesus returns. When will death be no more? When Jesus returns. We need to look further and further into the future. We need to look to our eternity. Now, I know Abraham didn't get all of this, but I also believe that somehow... The glimpses he had of Jesus, which we're told about in the book of John. 
his perspective that God was building something greater for him that was outside of this world and outside of this universe informed how he grieved. And I think it should inform how we grieve too. One last thing, and that is how amazing it is how God redeems grief and death. How God redeems grief and death. And again, just because God redeems grief grief and death doesn't mean it wipes out all or any need for grief on this earth. Because we still need to grieve. And grieving is good. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us some wonderful things about grieving and death that I think needs to cast a shadow over how we grieve. It says this, For this perishable, perishable body, must, be, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? May I pause for a moment and have you notice that right now, we are still living mortal lives. We still are perishable, which means right now, we still feel the sting of death. We still grieve over things that bring us sorrow. But when it comes to pass, he says, that's when death will be swallowed up in victory. That's when death will have no sting. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the victory? A day when there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, no more grieving. Perfect harmony with God created us to be and to live. I love the way it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that God flips death on its head. I love it that God takes the sting of death and reverses it into the gateway that gets us into heaven. If it weren't for death, you realize you would be stuck on this earth forever in your sin. Option A, live forever on earth in my sin. Option B, die, which will take that long, and live eternity on a new earth in heaven without sin. I'll take option two. (laughs) Right? I love it. Jesus always does this. God does this over and over again in Scripture. He takes something bad and he flips it on its head. He redeems grieving and death by his death and his resurrection. He actually flips the wages of sin is death into death is the way we go from this sinful, broken, painful world into eternal blessing and joy. It got reversed. So yes, we grieve over death and over other things in this world that cause us to grieve, but we do it with this hope that one day it'll all be flipped upside down and we'll be living at peace and in joy with no more trial and no more sorrow. We live now in a fallen world as fallen people. We've inherited grief from Adam, pain from Adam, suffering from Adam, trials from Adam, but Jesus conquered all of it in his death and his resurrection, so we have a new inheritance. And so this leads me to the closing verse from our scripture memory, which I bet some of you were already thinking of. Our scripture memory goes like this. We've not gotten to the second part of it yet, but the second part speaks to grief and grieving, so I want to read it to us this morning. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So no more death, no more rotting away, no more pain, no more suffering. Perfect inheritance kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So grieving, but hopeful. Sorrowful, but also rejoicing at the same time. The purpose is so that the testigenuous of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The day that he is revealed, your trials of various kinds that you grieve and suffer through will somehow bring praise and honor and glory to Jesus. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, I know that deep in you burns one desire. And that is everything you think, do, and say would result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even your grieving is meant to bring praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I say this, grieve, Grieve with hope, but grieve. Grieve not with regret, but grieve knowing that when you grieve over the various trials, that at the end of the day, it will actually bring praise and honor and glory on the day that Jesus is revealed. So grieve well. Help each other to grieve well. Grieve together. And this week, I really, really want to encourage you. Think through your life. Maybe it's good for you this week just to think about all the things that have made you sad. All the things that have brought you grief. And just ask yourself, have I, have I grieved well? Have I grieved with God? Have I grieved with others? Have I, have I, have I grieved in a way that connects me to God? Have I grieved in a way that actually will one day bring him honor and glory and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know that when I actually give that little assignment that everyone in this room is processing this very differently. Some of you, grief is right here. I mean, it's there. And for others, grief might seem more distant. And it's not my desire to dig up distant past grieves, but it is my desire to help you process all the pain and the suffering that you've been through with freedom and hopefully in a context that is safe and encouraging. And so if you have grieved alone and need to grieve with others, I want to encourage you to do that. I'm sure you have friends, family that you can grieve with. And if you are grieving, I just want to encourage you, don't grieve begrudgingly. Grieve for the glory of God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. So if the band wants to come up, let me just pray.
Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us. Father, the application of this message is so diverse and so sensitive and even perhaps possibly misunderstood. And I ask, Lord, that we would get the help that we need from you first and then from others to grieve and to grieve in ways that will one day bring you honor and glory and praise. I'm so grateful, Holy Spirit, that you work in, in individual hearts. You're not just speaking to us as a collective group, but you're speaking to us as individuals. And so I ask that you would speak very clearly. Holy Spirit, that you would gently whisper to everyone in this room about grief, about their grieving, about how they're walking through their grief. And I pray that they would feel your presence, your comfort, your closeness, your pleasure, maybe in ways they've never felt it before. So, Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. I pray that you would help us as we sing and as we go about our day-to-day to grieve in your presence in a way that brings your comfort in whatever form of comfort you want to give us. Bring, bring healing today our, into our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.